Body. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 4 through 20. Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 through 20, and the title of our lesson this morning is Imperfectly Obedient Faith. Imperfectly Obedient Faith. Uh, today, we're going to look at the continuing story of Abraham, and, and as we said last week, we're going to look at him as an, over the next few weeks as an example of the life of faith. And one of the things we're going to see today is two things, two characteristics of the life of faith. One is obedience, and the other is imperfectness, if that's a word. And, and so if you put those together, what you see about genuine faith is that it is imperfectly um, o- obedient. So I'm going to kind of take these in two different pieces because we'll see this in the, in the chapter today. The first one is obedient faith. Obedient faith. Now, I want to start here. If I ask you this morning, what is saving faith? What does genuine... Listen, there are people... Uh, I, I was just real quickly looking at the news this morning and I saw where, um, you know, one person said she's deeply religious and that's why she believes in abortion. I saw a, uh, one of, I saw a Methodist minister uh, went in front of the, um, uh, the, 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 the Congress or whatever on the Supreme Court testimony and said that God, Jesus came that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. That's why women should be able to have more abortions so that they can have more abundant life. Listen, there's faith out there all over the place. Everybody says they have faith, but what does it really look like? What does genuine saving faith really look like? Now, if I ask that question this morning, any good evangelical would say that we are saved by faith alone apart from works, right? We all, that's, that's you know, that's Christianity 101, right? We are saved by faith apart from works. And we get this from Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this... It's talking about being saved by faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So we are saved by faith alone. But some people will come along and say, listen, if you make a profession of faith and you believe in Jesus Christ, you can walk out that door and do absolutely nothing. And you're still saved. There, has to be, there doesn't have to be any evidence. That, by the way, there are people out here that will argue this that you don't have to do anything, there has to be no evidence in your life, and your faith is still real. That's kind of one side of the argument. Others will say just the opposite. Well, no, no, that's not true. That if your faith is genuine, it will inevitably produce godliness in your life. It will inevitably produce fruit in your life. Now, which one is... Which one is right? And when I say which one is right, I mean which one is right scripturally. It doesn't really matter what we think. It's what Scripture says. Well, and by the way, that question is not unimportant because it really goes to the very heart of what the gospel message is to people. Um, and, and if eternity is really riding on this, then it's a really big deal that we get the definition of saving faith uh, correct. Now listen, I believe that Scripture is extremely clear 
in what it teaches. There, there, I don't even understand why there would even be a debate here. For example, John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. By the way, that's not a command. That is a statement of fact. Does everybody see that? That is a statement of fact. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. James 1, 22, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If, you're just a, if you just hear the word and say you have faith, but you don't do anything, he says you're, you're deceiving yourselves. Uh, John eight thirty one. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That, that scripture right there tells us there's a level of belief in Jesus that does not rise to saving faith. Does everybody see that? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If... If you abide, if you show obedience to my word, then you're truly my disciples. Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me or calls out to me, Lord, Lord, is going to go to heaven. Not everyone who says, only those who what? Do. It's not about saying, it's about the, the doing. 1 John 2, 3 through 5, which to me is the definitive scripture. And by this we know we have come to know him. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you have genuine faith if we keep his commandments. And he doesn't stop there. Whoever says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. You're a liar. You say you know Jesus Christ and you don't keep his commandments. You are a liar and the truth is not in you. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And, and by the way, go back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. If you go to verse 10, it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why you are born again. That's why you are saved. That's why you are a new, a new creation, to show forth good works. In other words, he, 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 everything changes, right? So, so what we see from all of this is that genuine saving faith is obedient faith. Genuine saving faith is always obedient faith. Now, God doesn't change. Those scriptures are all from the New Testament. But if genuine faith is obedient faith in the New Testament, then we should see exactly the same thing in the Old Testament, and that's exactly what we do see in the life and story of Abraham. So let's turn to verse 4, and we'll begin to look at obedient faith. Genesis 12, 4 says this, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, what you see there is obedience and the Word of God. Remember what we just said, obey the Word, keep my commandments, right? Now look at this, Abram went as the Lord had told him. The Lord speaks, Abraham does. You got the word of God, Abraham obeys. Right? If you, if you look at this same uh, scripture uh, kind of in Hebrews 11.8 where it recounts this, it says this, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called. You got the call, you got obedience. You got the word of God, you got obedience. You, you always see these two things going together when, when the Bible is talking about genuine faith. So here's two things about obedient faith. Number one, and, and, and these really shouldn't have to be said, but we almost have to. Obedient faith hears the Word of God. 
See, faith is not some vague leap in the dark. I want you to understand that. A lot of times I think we have this idea that faith means I'm just stepping out into space and God's going to catch me. No. Faith is an obedient response to the Word of God. You hear the Word of God and you obey the Word of God. It's not just some vague leap in the dark. But before you can obey, you have to hear. You have to hear the Word of God. Now, in Abram's day, before the Bible was written, God would speak to, 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 to men in different ways. Sometimes He would speak to them in an audible voice. Sometimes He would appear to them in, in human form. He, he, he spoke through the words of prophets. He spoke through sometimes through an animal, which He did with, with, uh, uh, with the donkey one time. He spoke in all these different ways. Now, God is the same today. He's not limited if he wanted to appear right here on this stage right now and speak to us, he could do that. That's his business. But the fact is, we probably rarely, if ever, see things like that anymore. And the reason for that is because God has chosen a different means of communication. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, when Jesus came, everything changed. Uh, everything that God wanted to say to us is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, in fact, you cannot separate the person of Jesus from the words of Jesus. The, the word of God and the personhood of Jesus are just intimately connected. In fact, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. We actually call Him the Word. You live by His Word. You live by faith in Him and in His, His Word. You cannot separate those two. And so how do we learn of Christ? Well, Jesus said, search the Scriptures, they testify of me. Right? So the Bible is God's revelation of Himself and His Son. And of course, not only do we have the Word of God, we have the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will bring to your remembrance what? Everything that I said. So the Holy Spirit's job is to guide us and lead us and teach us and give us wisdom to apply God's Word. But first, you have to hear God's Word. Listen, if you're not reading the Word of God, if you're not studying the Word of God, if you're not assimilating the Word of God into your thinking, the Holy Spirit cannot and will not guide you. Let me say that again, because you won't hear people say that if you're not reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, assimilating the Word of God into your thinking, don't expect the Holy Spirit to guide you, because He does it through the Word. He's bringing to remembrance the Word. When you come to a situation, He says, remember this Word? Remember what Jesus said? But if you don't have access to that, you haven't heard that, it's not going to be there. So that's why it's so important that we read and study the, the Word of God. So the first thing obedient faith has to do is hear the Word of God. The second thing, of course, it has to act upon what it hears. Look at verses 5 through 9. It says, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. 
And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, if you just, if you just read that, the first thing that kind of jumps out to you is there's a, whole, there's a lot of action going on, right? There's a lot of movement. He moves over here and he goes over there. He builds an altar. He calls on the name of the Lord. He leaves. He goes over here. But if you look very closely, there are two dominant themes that come out of those verses, and both of which illustrate the life of obedient faith. The first is Abram the pilgrim. Abram the pilgrim. If, if you read those again, you see phrases like this, Abram passed through, Abram moved. Abram pitched his tent. He journeyed on. So you've got this idea that he's, he never stays in one place very long. He's constantly on the move. Listen, I want you to note something. God promised Abraham to give the land to his descendants, not to him. You remember that? I will give this land to your descendants. He never promised to give it to Abraham himself. So as, even as Abram gets to Canaan, he's still a pilgrim. He's, he's, you know, he's not saying, man, I'm going to go to Canaan, I'm going to build me a big house, I'm going to get me a bunch of land. And No, even as he gets there, he's just constantly on the move, constantly. You know, you think about it, it's kind of a weird dynamic, right? God says, go to Canaan, to the land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give it to your descendants. He never says, I'm going to give it to you. See, you and I would be going and looking for the best place to build a house, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we be doing that? And he's, what's his goal here? You ever thought about that? What, what, what's my goal? I'm just, he's constantly on the move. He's constantly journeying from one place to another, never settling down. See, we know from Hebrews, in fact, that that land was not his ultimate goal. In fact, heaven was his ultimate goal. And he had to just trust that God would make good on his word, even if he didn't see it with his own eyes in that, in that land. By the way, this is exactly the same for you and I. We are not of this world. We are not to love the things of this world. We are just pilgrims passing through. Our destination is heaven. It's no different from Abraham. Now, I'm not saying... It, ours is more inward than it is outward, right? I'm not saying you, you don't buy a house. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying inwardly, we never love the world. We never settle in this world. We never, we never focus on this world. Our focus is always on heaven. Paul said, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Because things of this earth are temporary. But the things in heaven are eternal. That should be our mindset and our focus as we go through this life. And when we encounter hardships, we just have to trust that what God said is absolutely true. And the pilgrim life means that we obey God even when we go through trials, even when we go through testing, knowing our reward is in heaven, not, not here. That should be our focus. In fact, when you look at Abram's life, from the time he left Haran to the time that he died, he lives in a tent. Never builds a house, never builds anything permanent. From the time he left Haran to the time of his death, he's always living in tents. In fact, he never owns a single piece of that land except the piece of land he has to buy to bury his wife. Never owns a thing. The only thing of permanence that he leaves behind in that land is altars. 
That's the only thing of permanence that he leaves behind is altars, which leads us to the second part of obedient faith, which is Abram, the worshiper, and the witness. Look at verses 7 through 8 again. The Lord appeared to Abram, and he said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. You see, just as the tent shows him to be a pilgrim, the altar shows him to be a worshiper and and a witness. You see, wherever he went, he would erect an altar to the living God and bear witness to the godless Canaanites. Remember it said right in the middle of that, the Canaanites were in the land. So he comes into a land, it's a bunch of pagans. They're, they're burning their children. I mean, these, these, this is the kind of whacked out stuff these people were doing. They, were, they had temples with, with, where they had prostitutes in the temples. They, they, would, they would sacrifice their children in the fire to Baal. I mean, they did crazy stuff. And he comes into this land where they, and he builds an altar to the one true living God. See, when he calls on the name of the Lord, what it's telling us is that he's openly acknowledging in front of the pagan world, in front of the Canaanites, he's openly acknowledging his trust in God. He, he's basically, you know, we, we see people come on a, a land and they, they plant a flag and claim this land for the king or the queen or whatever. What he's doing basically, when he builds those altar, he's planting a flag for the one true living God in a land where there's no mention of God, no notice of God, or anything like that, he comes in and he builds an altar and declares God to be the one true living God. Now, as far as we know, the Canaanites ignored him. I don't know very many of them that changed. And in fact, 700 years God will allow to go by before the Canaanites are judged. 700 years between Abraham and Joshua. He'll let them go on in their ways for another 700 years. But Abram, the the worshiper, had borne witness to them. See, the same is true for you and I. I As I read the news this morning, just going through it, I'm thinking, what is is wrong? What is is wrong with you people? Your thinking is just so... See, how, and I've just realized even more importantly how important it is that you and I stand up and plant a witness in the land. We have to be... See, God doesn't care anymore. It's not about building an altar, but it's about establishing an altar in our life that people can see us. And, and, and whether they change, whether they mock, whether they ignore, that's not the point. That's not what you're called to do. You're called to put forth a witness before a lost and dying generation. Now listen, some are going to hear. Some will be saved. Others are going to mock and ignore. But one day... Those people will stand before God and they'll think back and they'll think about every Christian that crossed their path and they'll say, that they planted an altar in my life. They planted an altar in my land. That's what we're called to do. One quick thing about Abram's journey. Um, when you read back through that, he, remember he comes in from Haran, he comes down the coast, he comes in from the north. And it says in verse uh, 5, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Now, if you go study this, this is interesting. The oak of Morah can be translated the diviner's oak. Diviner like um, sorcery. So something, there was something about this oak at this place called Morah 
that it was called the Diviner's Oak. It was a, more than likely there was a Canaanite shrine there. They saw it as, as some kind of guidance to the a place where if you wanted to receive guidance from the gods, you went to this oak tree. And it was called the Oak of Mora or the Diviner's Oak. And so here's this interesting thing to me. Now, we're not told why Abraham stops there. But you come to a place where people receive their guidance from a tree, right? And Abram, it says right there, God appears to him. The true and living God appears to him right there. And before he leaves, he builds an altar to the true and living God. And he leaves a witness into that amidst all the sorcery and the idolatry and the polytheism. He leaves a witness when he... One thing about Abraham, when he comes into a place and he leaves... You know he was there. You know he was there. You might not want to take, you, you might want to listen to him. You might not want to worship his God. That's up to you. But Abraham always leaves a witness. He, he leaves the Oak of Mora at Shechem. He moves further south down into the central part of the land between Bethel and Ai. Once again, he builds an altar there. He calls on the name of the Lord. And then later he moves further south. Verse 9 says, he journeyed on still going toward the Negev. By the way, the Negev desert today is still a desert. The word Negev means parched regions. But it's not saying in that day it was also used just as a geographical location. It meant going toward the south. If you said going toward the Negev, it was like saying we're going toward the, we're going toward the south. It'd be like, Somebody's saying, I'm heading toward the Mason-Dixon. It tells us we're going north, right? You're not, it doesn't mean your destination is literally the Mason-Dixon. It just means you're going uh, north. So what Abram has done, and I'm not even sure he knew what he was doing, but he's basically outlined Israel. He's basically stopped in the symbolic places where one day his descendants will, will, will own that land. So he starts in, in Shechem, he ends up in Bethel, all the way down to the Negev. And he's, in a sense, he's walked the land and he's claimed it for his descendants. Now, God, he has obeyed. God has spoken, he's moved, and he's obeyed. Now what we're going to see is the other side of genuine faith, which means it is never perfect. It is imperfectly obedient. And by the way, I am so glad of this next story. I'm glad the Bible is not a fairy tale. I'm glad that when the Bible writes about these great men and women, that it doesn't just focus on the good and leave out all the bad. Because if it did, you'd read stories of these men and women who they never sinned and they always obeyed God perfectly and they, they always trusted Him, they always overcame adversity. But listen, my faith ain't like that. Is yours? It doesn't look like my faith. And, and that's not real. Real faith is imperfect. It's not perfect. So the Bible, and I'm just, I'm so thankful when the Bible tells us these stories that it just lays it out there. Listen, go to the New Testament. Think about men like Peter. Was Peter perfect? No. Was Paul perfect? No, none of them's perfect. And it just lays it out there, even sometimes embarrassingly. It says his brothers didn't believe in him. It said his, his mom and his brothers thought he was nuts. It just puts it out there for us because that's real life. And the Bible wants us to see the whole thing. And it does this even with Abraham. Look at verse 10. So far he's been obedient, which is great. Now he's going to stumble. Now there was a famine in the land. And so Abram went down to Egypt to journey there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now remember, Abram has always lived on the Euphrates River. He started out in the city of Ur. He moved to the city of Haran. 
He's always lived on the Euphrates River, always had plenty of water, probably never experienced any kind of famine. But now, by the way, he comes to the land of promise, right? He's obeying God, and what's the very first thing? We, we got a famine, right? Now, let me tell you, this is a test whether you understand it or not. You're going to see this all through the life of Abraham. The life of faith is a series of tests. It's not going to be just this smooth sailing God will bring you and take you through tests because he wants to build up your faith. He wants to edify your faith. He wants to mature your faith. And he does that through testing. He does that through trials. This is, this is Abraham's first test is this, is this famine. Now, to survive, he goes down to Egypt. Now, there's, listen, there's nothing wrong necessarily with going down to Egypt. In fact, at least twice more in the Bible, God will instruct people to go to Egypt. He did this with, um, you remember uh, Joseph's brothers when the famine, he says, go to Egypt and, and find us some food. And they go there and they find Joseph. When you get to the New Testament, he tells Mary and Joseph to go to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod. Remember that? So, so there's nothing necessarily wrong with going to Egypt. In fact, if you read the text, it says he goes down to sojourn, which means to just stay for a little while. He's not going to Egypt to settle. He's not staying there. He's just going there for a little while to get through the famine. Now, the, that's not the problem. The problem is there is no indication anywhere in this text that he ever asked God what to do. There's no indication anywhere in here that he ever seeks God's guidance. God, what do you, should I stay here? Should I go to Egypt? What should I do? Instead, what we find him doing is his own planning and his own scheming to kind of figure out how to handle this situation. Look, look at verses 11 through 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see any faith in there at all. Do you? I see no faith in there at all. Man, he's planning. Boy, she's, he's got a good-looking wife. He thinks, man, when I get there, them Egyptians are going to want you. They're going to kill me and take you. So say you're my sister, right? So that, because, because what's important here is I live, right? That's what's important. So, so, this, so you can just see this is man's planning. This is man's thinking. This is man's scheming. I don't see God anywhere in here. Look at verses 14 to 16. So when Abram entered Egypt... The Egyptians indeed saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princess of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he gave him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Now let me tell you, in one sense, his plan looks like it worked, didn't it? Not only is he safe, but now the, the Egyptians have dealt well with him. He's rich. Man, they just gave him all kind of stuff. So in one sense, it looks like your plan has worked. But I want you to remember the big picture. God has said to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation with many descendants. Now, you got a little bit of a problem here. He already had one problem, and his wife was barren. But in order to have many descendants, you need a wife. Now your wife is a part of another man's harem. So what you've done is you've just dug the, the big... For the short term, everything looks okay. For the long term, we got a big problem here. 
Because, in fact, when you look at it, it looks like God's plan is hanging by a thread now, humanly speaking, because now he doesn't even have a wife. Right? So what am I going to do with all... Everybody with me? By the way, we, we all should be... A, how many of us have schemed and planned and temporarily we fixed things for what we just didn't realize we were doing we just digging a bigger hole? Putting ourselves between a rock and a, and a hard place. By the way, this often happens to us during trials. We are often faithless, which is what Abraham is right now. He's not showing any faith at all. We are often faithless during trials. See, it's, it's significant that all of this starts with a famine. Yet all of this starts with a, with a test. And that exact same thing is true for you and I. Whenever we face trials, listen, you better be careful. Be on guard when you're going through a hard time. Because that is when Satan attacks See, a trial, and I've said this many times, a, a trial, a temptation, a test always had the potential to draw you closer to God or, dr- or drive you from Him. Always. And, and Satan knows that. L- look at 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. M- many of you know this scripture. Be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. Now, most of us stop right there. But you see, Peter is writing to this to people who are suffering. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you as... See, when he writes to people who are suffering, he says, be careful. Watch out. Because he knows that when you suffer, that's when you need to be on your guard because that's when your faith will go down, your trust will go down, and Satan will move in and say, trust yourself. Come up with your own plan. Do it your own way. And so Peter's writing to people who are suffering and saying, be careful, watch out, because you never know what's going to happen. So we, are, we tend to be most, most faithless when we are going through a trial. But in spite of our failures, God is always faithful. See, shining through this whole story is going to be God's faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful faithful for he cannot deny himself thank god for that scripture right there right thank god for that scripture um genesis 12 17 to 20 let's keep reading but the lord afflicted pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of sarai abram's wife so pharaoh called abram and said what is this that you have done to me why did you not tell me that she was your wife why did you say she's my sister so that i took her for my wife here take her back Basically what he says, take her back and get out of here. And so Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So even though Abraham creates this pickle, even though he creates this hole that he's dug into here, even though he's faithless and he's made a mistake, God stands up and is faithful and basically gets him out of it. Even though Abram gets his eyes off the Lord, the Lord's eyes are always on Abram. So what he does, he basically overrules Abraham's failure. He overrules Abraham's faithfulness, and he goes on to bring about his sovereign purpose and his plan. Now, there's some lessons here for you and I, and this is where we need to be careful. It's easy sometimes when we talk about God is always faithful and God has a sovereign plan and God is going to do these things even when we mess up, it's sometimes easy for you and I to fall into a trap of thinking, well, what I do really doesn't matter. 
then, right? If God is always going to get me out of it, if God's going to get me what do, does what he needs to do in the end anyway, what does it matter? But see, our actions do matter. And here's what I want to close with this morning. God's faithfulness is not a license to sin. God's, just because God is always faithful doesn't give us a license to, to sin. The freedom of the Christian life is not a freedom to do anything you want to do. It's not a freedom to sin. It's not a freedom to go your own way. It's not a freedom to disobey or ignore God's commands. You see, there is a way that we ought to live. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 I'm going to read you the first half of this verse, and I'm going to come to, back to it in just a minute. Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He says, Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord, Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Now, he's saying, I've set a bar for you of how you ought to behave, how you ought to act, how you ought to walk. And let me tell you, the ought to of the Christian life is an extremely high bar. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, You must therefore be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who is called is holy, you also should be holy in all of your conduct. Matthew 22, 37-39, and he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me tell you, that is a, all of those commands set a very high bar, do they not? Be perfect. Be holy. Love the Lord with everything that's in you. And in fact, every time I read those commands, I see how far, far short I fall. Anybody here perfect? Anybody here love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might? You don't do it one second of one day. There's always pride and selfishness and things that are... Yes or no? You never do that. Even at our very, very best, we fall woefully, woefully short. And that reality ought to drive us to the cross. It ought to drive us to the cross. Listen... I do this all the time. I mess up so bad, and I act so bad, and I think, man, I, I'm, I'm so glad there's Jesus. Because if it depended on me, I'd never get any. I'd never get to heaven. Because it, it, that's what the cross is all about. Go to the cross. That's where God's grace and His mercy are, are found to overcome our shortcomings. And it should remind us, though, Scripture, that God's acceptance can never be based on our works, can never be based on our merit. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ and His work alone and, and nothing else. But let me say this. With such a high standard, it would be easy for us to imagine that God... Listen, we, the, the whole thing today is imperfect obedience, right? We, we are always imperfectly obedient. Even on our best days, we, we're not perfect. Even on our best days, we fall short. And it would be very easy for us to imagine that God is continually displeased with us. You would think, man, I fail every single day to be obedient like I should. God is displeased with me. I'm, I'm sure some of y'all have struggled with that. We've all struggled with that. Man, how, God, how, do you, how can I keep failing you? Well, I know you, I know you don't like me very much right now, God, because I just keep messing up and messing up and messing up. 
I want to go back and read 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, do it even more. Now that is an, a very interesting scripture because let me tell you, the Thessalonians had no more reached a degree of perfection than you and I have. Right? They failed every single day. They weren't perfect. They weren't loving the Lord with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength. They weren't being holy just as Jesus was holy. They weren't doing any of them things. But Paul says, keep doing what you're doing. You are pleasing God. And do it even more and more. See, there's room for growth, which is the very reason Paul is writing. Grow more. Do it more. Walk more holy, more worthy. Do it more. They're on the road of obedience, but in fact, their walk did please God. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is basically saying to them, listen, you're doing it. You're doing it, brothers and sisters. You're living as you ought. Keep doing it. Keep pleasing God. In fact, do it more because there's room to grow. You're not perfect, but you can do it better. You see, for you and I, God's perfect standard should, should drive us on. Every day we get up. I, I know you, every day is a new day, right? You want to do better. I want to be a better man. I want to be a better person. I want to be a better father, better grandfather, better all those things. And mostly a better Christian, more like Jesus. But yet we all know we're not there. We're not living totally as we ought to. We fall uh, short every day, like I said, due to pride, due to selfishness, due to a, a myriad of different reasons. But here's the thing. To the degree that you are genuinely seeking to please God, to the degree that you are genuinely seeking to walk in obedience, God is pleased with you even though that obedience is imperfect. You see, I, if, if everything within, within you wants to be an obedient Christian, you want to obey the Word, yes, you're going to fail, but God is pleased with the want to. Does that make sense? He's pleased with that desire. He knows you're going to fail. Somewhere, I don't know if it's Proverbs or Psalms, it says he knows we're just dirt. It basically says he knows we're just made out of dirt. I always like that. Um, so it doesn't let us off the hooks. Everybody see where I'm trying to get at? Not, we're not let, just because God is faithful and, and we're imperfect, that doesn't let us off the hook. At the same time, God's not expecting. He knows who we are. He knows we're not going to be perfect. What he's looking at is inside, and he's looking at the want to. Genuine faith has, is not perfect obedience. It's an imperfect obedience, but there's a want to. I want to do better. I want to walk in obedience. I want to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I wanted to encourage you this morning, as we read the story of Abraham, there's so much there that God is faithful when Abraham isn't. All of those things are absolutely great, but God is still pleased with us. We kind of, I always look at the mountain, it's kind of like sanctification is a mountain, right? And you're climbing this mountain and you're trying to be better and sometimes you fall back 20 feet and you have to climb it up again and there's just... But God is pleased with the effort. God is pleased that you love His Son and that you worship His Son and that you trust His Son. So don't get too... You don't... You know, we don't want to get over here and think, well, I can do anything I want to do. No, we still keep trying to climb the mountain of obedience, knowing we're going to do it imperfect and knowing that God is pleased with our uh, effort. Next week, we're going to turn to chapter 13. We should look at the whole chapter. 
the title is Choices and Consequences. Choices and Consequences. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, Genesis 12. What a, what a wonderful chapter. Thank you for the life of Abraham and some of the lessons.